Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13 will be our text for this morning. While you're turning there, I'll ask, have you ever heard of the show, What Not to Wear? You laugh, some of you like that show, huh? Well, if you haven't seen that show, it's similar to maybe some other makeover shows that you've seen. So in this particular show, What Not to Wear, the hosts find some shabbily, poorly dressed person, tacky clothes maybe, and they teach this person, they take this person under their wing, teach them what clothes to wear, they teach them about style, they teach them what not to wear, the name of the show, and they, they take them out shopping, they give them $5,000 to buy new clothes. And then comes the hair, right? They have this, this hair stylist. Sometimes he chops it off and they get real upset. Uh, they, just, they do wonders, though, with people's hair and make it uh, beautiful. And then the makeup. The lady comes in and applies all this makeup. And one, of my, one thing that I think is funny that they say, I don't quite get it, though. Now you look so beautiful. As in, as in before, before I caked all this makeup on your face, not so much. Now you look so beautiful. And then comes the reveal, the unveiling, where they have their new clothes, they have the makeup on, they have their hair done, all their friends are in a room together, and she comes in. And everybody is amazed, and everyone's so happy for her, and they live ha happily ever after, right? That's the, way, that's the way it looks on the show anyway. Leonard, this is going somewhere, it is. In our text this morning, we have an unveiling of Jesus in His glory. But, unlike these makeup, makeover shows, this is a real unveiling. It's not superficial. It's not uh, makeup or special effects. It's not superficial. This is the, the unveiling of the true glory of Jesus Christ in all of His splendor. We call it the transfiguration. Look at our passage together. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters or tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. In this passage, we get a glimpse along with Peter, James, and John, of the true glory of Jesus. In Mark's account of this transfiguration, Jesus is revealed 
as the divine Son of God who is present with His people and even suffers on behalf of His people. Last week, saw Peter declared to Jesus, You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the one chosen of God. And now Jesus has begun teaching them about how we must suffer and die. And, as, and here we see Jesus in all His splendor and majesty. Now it's not that this glory wasn't on Him all the rest of the time. This is something that He has had all along, but it's just been covered up. It's been veiled. And now the curtains are being pulled back. The hazy film is being peeled away and we see who Jesus truly is. Because Mark has written down this account for us, we get to kind of look in with the disciples and, and imagine what they must have seen. This morning I want us to learn from this passage three important truths about Jesus, His identity, and His mission. Jesus' identity and mission. Here, here they are. First, Jesus is God's one and only Son. Talking about uniqueness. Jesus is God's one and only Son. Second, Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And third, Jesus is the suffering Son of Man. If you get, don't get it now, that's okay. I'm going to explain each of these in more detail as we go along. But first, I want you to notice the uniqueness of Jesus as God's one and only Son. Do you know what it means to be unique? That something is unique means something's one of a kind. It stands alone. There aren't any others like it or that compare to it. It strikes me that this is what we want for ourselves oftentimes, right? We want to be unique. We want to stand out from the rest. It happens on the social networks, on Facebook. We want to put up statuses or pictures that make us stand out from the rest. It happens at work or at school. We want to appear unique. We want to stand out. And this temptation is probably especially prevalent in the childhood and teenage years. We want the world to revolve around us, but really, as adults, we know it's true of us, too. We want to stand out. It, it comes out in the clothes we wear, maybe, our hair, hairstyle or our lack of hairstyle. It comes out in the makeup we wear in a certain way so that we'll stand out. But really, all these are examples of superficial uniqueness. Right? They're not real. They're things that we manipulate on ourselves in order to stand out. But in this passage, Jesus stands alone as unique. And it's not superficial. It's nothing manipulated on Himself. It is truly who He is. His uniqueness is true to the very core of who He is. There are several things in this passage we can't really understand unless we understand something about the Old Testament. See, one thing Mark is doing here, the writer of this gospel, one thing he's doing here is comparing Jesus to the Old Testament prophet Moses. The language Mark uses would be readily understood by his readers as referring back to another event in the history of God's people, specifically Exodus chapter 24. If you're able, please turn there, hold your place in Mark, and turn back to Exodus chapter 24, and you'll see this. Exodus chapter 24, verses 15 to 18. Exodus 24, 15 to 18. And as we read this, think about what we just read in the Mark passage, the words that were there. 
says in verses 15 to 18, When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day the Lord called Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Did you get the similarities between Mark's account of the transfiguration and this account in Exodus? Both of God's servants going up on the mountain. There are six days of preparation before seeing the glory of the Lord. There's the cloud covering the mountain in which God is present. And there's the voice coming out of the cloud, the very voice of God speaking to His servants. We could also say in both accounts, the glory of the Lord appears. And for the Exodus account, for the Israelites, it looks to the people who are standing down on the mountain like a consuming fire on top of it. And for the disciples, Jesus' clothes turn a dazzling, brilliant, white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Jesus was transfigured before them. That means changed in some way. The glory that He had had all along is now revealed to the three disciples. But something else happens. Notice Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. Both of these men, Moses and Elijah, were servants of God, prophets of God. They spoke His word. Moses would have been a thousand or more years before Jesus' birth. Elijah would have been 500 or so years before Jesus' birth. We've just seen Moses' experience on the mountaintop. Elijah also met with God on the mountaintop. He thought he was the only servant of God left. He thought he was all alone and everyone else had deserted. In 1 Kings 19, God commands Elijah to stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord as he passes by. And God revealed his glory to Elijah. He allowed him to see some of his glory. God taught him then that I'm still in control. And guess what? You're not the only one. I am going to be victorious for my people. Peter sees all this, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, the brilliant whiteness with wonder and amazement. The, the Mark says that the disciples were terrified. They were frightened. They didn't know what to make of this. And he just doesn't know what to say. We'll look more at his response in a few minutes, but for now, notice that he just he recognizes something amazing is happening. He wants to stay a while. He wants to set up tents for them to reside in for a little while. He recognizes something holy is taking place. But it's almost as if he's treating all three of these men, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, with the same sort of reverence, with the same sort of honor and admiration. Peter responds, and then God responds from the cloud. He covers the mountain with a cloud, shielding his own glory, and speaks to his disciples. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. It's as if God is saying, I've, he's told you about his suffering and you didn't believe him. Listen to him, the divine son of God. And then after the, the voice, Moses and Elijah disappear. They're gone from their sight. They see only Jesus. I think what we should learn from this is the uniqueness of Jesus as God's son. It's like among all the characters on the black and white TV screen, there's one 
that appears in bright, shining, brilliant 3D, the Lord Jesus Christ. When He appears, everything else fades to gray in the background. We fade to the background. His disciples fade to the background. Jesus alone is front and center where He ought to be. Jesus is not just a prophet speaking the words of God. He is the very Son of God. He is God in human flesh. He's greater than Elijah who worked miracles upon miracles for God's people. He's greater than Moses. You remember what Moses did? In the Exodus, he led the, the people of God out of Egypt. They were in slavery for 400 years. He led them out and rescued God's people. But really, Moses is just a shadow of Jesus. It's just a foretaste of who Jesus is, of the true Savior who leads His people on their own exodus, out of slavery to sin and sure death. Jesus is the new and true Moses who brings the people of God out of slavery and into the promised land of heaven. Jesus is the unique and divine Son of God. There's no one like Him. Even among God's best and greatest prophets, Elijah and Moses, they don't compare to Jesus, the divine Son of God. But there's more here too. Jesus is also Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. Look again at verse 5. Peter's response to the amazing scene of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters or tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, is all about how God rescued his people from slavery through God's servant Moses, and their journey through the wilderness, heading towards the promised land. After this rescue, God gave the people many instructions through Moses about how they should live, about how they should worship Him, about what they should do. And some of the instructions we find in Exodus 25, verse 8. God said to Moses, Then have them make me a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. A sanctuary is a holy place, a place where God is present. Sometimes we call this a sanctuary, but, you know, technically it's not. Technically, this building is not the place where God dwells. We, God's people, are the sanctuary. He dwells with us, through us, and in us by His Holy Spirit. We together, when we come together to worship God and to hear His Word are God's sanctuary. When we come together on a time like this to sing praises to Him, to pray, to hear the Word preached, God is present in a special way. God is present here in a special way when His people gather together like this. In the Old Testament, God had His people build a tabernacle or a tent. A big, glorious, had gold all over it tent in which He would dwell. It was a holy place. It's where God's presence would be manifest. So the priests uh, were the only ones who could go into certain places, and they had to do certain washings and rituals before they even went in there. And you probably know the, the innermost part of the tent, the Holy of Holies, was only entered into once per year by the chief priest. It was the holy place, the sanctuary of God. So what Peter is doing here when he's talking about tents, he's recognizing that this is a holy place, that this is something holy taking place. 
It brings up the idea of God communicating with and walking among His people. Maybe Peter thought this was the end. Maybe Peter thought this is when Jesus is going to come down and establish His kingdom. This is it right here on this mountain. This is going to be the base for His operations. At any moment, there's going to be a new tabernacle in which God would be present with His people. Did Peter get it right? No, not quite. See, the, the tabernacle now is Jesus. Jesus is the new tabernacle. Where God dwelt in the Old Testament in this, this uh, tent, now God dwells fully and completely in Jesus Christ. It was just a foretaste of the Messiah, of Jesus like what the prophet Isaiah had spoken about many years before Jesus was even born. We read it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. It's a verse we hear at Christmas. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Gospel writer John also speaks about God coming to live with His people in John 1, 14. The Word, that's Jesus, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, God was making His presence known among mankind. In the Old Testament it was a tent, but in the New Testament God was present with His people in a person, in Jesus, born of a virgin, in human flesh, with His people, with His creation. From this text so far, we have seen the uniqueness of Jesus and the fact that He is Emmanuel, God with us. And now we come to the third truth about Jesus, His identity and His mission. And this one's the most difficult, maybe, for His disciples to understand. They didn't get it. Jesus is the suffering Son of Man. Jesus is the suffering Son of Man. Can you say that with me? Jesus is the suffering Son of Man. Notice that while the disciples were coming down the mountain with Jesus, He gave them instructions. Don't tell anybody about this until I rise from the dead. Now we've heard Jesus say that before in earlier chapters. Don't tell anybody about this healing. Don't tell anyone. It wasn't time yet. But here He gives them a, a time reference. Not until after the Son of Man rises again. Commentator William Lane says, Jesus prohibits the telling of what they had seen and perceived because their enthusiasm was based on a superficial or false preconception of what he, who He was as Messiah and Son of God. They didn't understand truly who He was. Can you imagine what they might have said if they had gone out immediately and started telling other people what they had seen? We saw Jesus in His glory. He's about to come in His kingdom. He's about to destroy all the Romans and set up the Israel nation. They wouldn't really understand until they saw Jesus suffer. Until they saw Jesus die on a cross. Until they saw Jesus risen from the dead. They wouldn't understand it. They still think Jesus is going to be a political, military, revolutionary. Look at verses 10 and 11. We can tell they still don't understand. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Now this question might seem like a difficult 
question to understand it first. What does their question mean? Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? The teacher of the, of the law are the Jewish scribes. They're the ones who have studied Scripture over and over again. And they had interpreted this to mean that Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, must return before the day of the Lord. That's the end. Elijah the prophet must return before the day of the Lord. He would prepare the way for the end and he would restore all things. And then the Messiah would come. And then the judgment. So it seems that their question comes from a confusion about Jesus' teaching about his suffering and death. The disciples are thinking, if Elijah comes and restores all things, he makes everything great, he, he prepares the way for the kingdom of God, Nothing bad's going to happen. It's all good. Suffering? What suffering? What are you talking about? Suffering, dying, and rising from the dead. There's no need for that. They had no part in their plan. It was the furthest thing from their minds. So Jesus replies to them, You're right. Elijah does come first and restore all things. And then he says, Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. So we see that the disciples were right about Elijah. He would come and prepare the way for the end, but not in the way they thought. Jesus said of Elijah that he had already come and been mistreated. They did whatever they wanted to him. You see, John the Baptist had come in the spirit of Elijah. That's who Jesus is referring to when he speaks of Elijah. He had come, John the Baptist had come to prepare the way of the Lord to prepare the way of the Messiah, to prepare for the kingdom of God. And how was John the Baptist treated? He was killed by King Herod. He was, he was beheaded by King Herod, all because of he, him preaching and teaching the word of God, the truth of God. See, Herod's wife didn't like it too much, and she wanted his head on a platter. Jesus' response here goes like this. If the one who is preparing the way for the kingdom, if the one who is preparing the way for the Messiah suffered and died in this way, why would it be so strange if the Messiah himself suffered and died? Why would it be so strange for the ones who mistreated the Lord's servant to also mistreat the Lord? It, it had been predicted by the prophets, and surely it would be this way. But there's a reason why the disciples are so confused. They, along with the Jews of the time, had gotten some of the Old Testament right, but other parts completely wrong. They had understood some of it, but other parts they, they missed completely. Specifically, they had understood the term son of man. Okay, you're going to repeat a couple more with me. Say son of man with me. Son of man. But they misunderstood another idea called the idea of the suffering servant. Say that with me suffering servant. So we have these two ideas, the Son of Man and the suffering, ser uh, suffering servant. Last week we saw that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. He does it again in this passage. It's written, the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. This term, Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. It says this, listen carefully. I saw in the night visions, and behold, this is Daniel speaking, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's his father, God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man in that passage is a king with an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. The Jews and Jesus' disciples understood that this referred to the Messiah whose kingdom would never end, but they thought it would come through military might. They thought it would come through political maneuvering, but they misunderstood about the suffering servant, which speaks really about Jesus' mission, the Messiah's mission. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this suffering servant in Isaiah 53, verses 2 to, 2 to 6. Listen to how he describes this suffering servant. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces when he was despised. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who does that passage refer to? Jesus. We know that right off, right? That refers to Jesus, the suffering servant. And yet the Jews of this time had read this and studied this and come to the conclusion that it was speaking about Israel. The people of God, the Israelites, they had been through suffering too, right? In Egyptian slavery. Uh, many other times in the Old Testament we see of Esther rescuing them. And even in between the Testaments, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a, a long period of time there where the Jews were suffering more. They were oppressed and mistreated. They thought this referred to Israel, the people of God. But in fact, this suffering servant was none other than the Messiah himself. Jesus brought together these two images, the Son of Man, the kingly Son of Man, and the suffering servant. And the Jews thought, these don't go together. The, the Messiah would come and rescue the suffering servant Israel, not suffer along with them. So they don't understand the part about suffering, being rejected and dying and rising again. And they wouldn't understand it until he had done all those things. Yet this is something each one of us must understand this morning. Jesus is the glorious, divine Son of God. Have you taken that into account in your life? If Jesus is God, what does that mean for your life? What does that mean for how you understand His commands to you? And yet, we have rejected His rule over our lives. We have pushed Him away. The divine Son of God. Do you realize how serious this offense is? If we were to see His glory... Glory is a word referring to His holiness. And often in the Old Testament, it's a word denoting brightness, shining light. If we were to see His glory in its fullness, we wouldn't be able to stand it. It would be like looking directly into the sun from ten feet away. 
we would melt in the power of His glory. And yet we sin against Him day in and day out. Have you recognized the seriousness of our sin? Jesus is God in human flesh. He made His presence among us. He became a part of His own creation as He came into the world in the form of a little baby. And He came with a mission. He came to rescue His people, but not in the way everyone thought. His mission was suffering and death. He was born to die. That's why we celebrate Christmas. He was born in order to die. As the prophet Isaiah said again, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins, and upon Him was the punishment that brought us peace. Friend, have you ever believed that about Jesus? Have you ever come to trust in the work of Jesus to save you? Did you know you were in need of saving? You must be saved. And there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Every single one of us deserves punishment for sinning against the divine Son of God. For your lying, for your breaking promises, for your stealing, for your lust, for your anger and bitterness against someone made in the image of God. For these things you deserve for God to punish you forever in hell. Maybe that's the first time you've ever heard it it put like that. Maybe that's the first time you've ever recognized that that is the seriousness of our sin. God would be perfectly just and right to send every one of us there. And yet, because of God's love, He did something to save His people from their sins and from hell. Because of His love. Not because you deserved anything, but because of His free love. This was His plan from all eternity. The Father sent His Son to become a man, the man Jesus, who was perfect, sinless, never did anything wrong, never wronged anyone, and was always kind to others. And yet He was rejected and hated by men. He suffered and died. He was killed. His hands and His feet had nails driven through them as He was posted upon a piece of wood, a cross. In His suffering and in His death, He took the punishment that sinners deserve. He took the punishment and pain of what we should endure in hell. Now, the Scripture tells us, anyone who turns from his sin and trusts in Jesus, in His work that He accomplished, they will be saved. Have you done that? Have you trusted in Jesus to save you? If you trust Him, His righteousness will be considered your righteousness because your sin will be considered His sin when He died on the cross. Will you trust Him today? Will you turn away from your sins of trying to be out in the front, trying to be unique, and instead look to Jesus who is the unique Son of God? and trust Him with your life. I pray that we all will, and we would all recognize His glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we pray that You would teach us by it, not only today, but every day. We pray that You would help us in seeing the glory of Jesus in this account, that we would come back to reality, that we would come back a right recognition of who we are in our sinfulness 
and of who Christ is as our Savior. I pray that you would work by your Spirit in the hearts of your people, that you would turn sinners to you, that you would draw your people to trust in you more, and that as a result, you would send us out in the world to love others as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.